we are going to jump into the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. It's about three quarters of the way through. If you have a phone, you can open the Bible uh, app on uh, your phone. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, there's some on the table here. These are our gift to you. And as you turn there, as you go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, that's what we're going to pick up this morning uh, in our series. We just have a little bit of uh, family business uh, to do really quickly before we start. And um, Where's Robert? Robert, are you in here? Robert, I know you didn't know. I couldn't tell you because you wouldn't have shown up. Come on up here for me, buddy. Come on up here. Come on now. Uh, if you haven't had the chance to meet Robert yet, he's probably run over your toes with a cart uh, or something at some point. Robert is, uh, oh man, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> he's a good dude. That's what he is. Hey, we have a gift for you. I'm going to give this to you really quickly. Uh, a lot of times when it's ladies, we give them bouquets of flowers. We didn't think that would be appropriate. So we got some motor oil. And we have a card for you here, okay? I'm going to give that to you before I forget. And we, uh, we just want to honor Robert, because for the last, how long that you were in charge? For the last four years, uh, Robert was our main setup guy. He ran the show. He was here almost every Sunday. When he took over our setup ministry, uh, it was like, uh, yeah, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was like, we, we hoped that things would happen before y'all got here, but it wasn't always a guarantee. Uh, and Robert took over, rolled his sleeves up, got to work, uh, gave a lot of leadership, put in a lot of time, uh, and just did a fantastic job leading our setup ministry. And just heading into 2019, felt like he needed to take a step back. So he took one week off, and then he was back on setup again <laughs> again this morning. Uh, but he's handed leadership over to Ron uh, Evans, who's probably back there somewhere, and Ken Hayes, who I can see uh, back there. So they're giving oversight to our setup ministry uh, now. But I just want to take a second and say, Robert, man, you have been a blessing to our church family. Uh, much of what you have done, yeah, praise God. Uh, much of what you have done, no one has ever seen. No one has ever seen the work that you do getting here at six o'clock in the morning, picking up the trailer, coming here during the week to, you know, help mount the lights we have and build out the stage and run the wires and all the things that you've done, all the hours you've put in. And I know you hate every second of this, and that is what I love about you. Because this is what Robert will tell me every single time I thank him for something or share a story about something God's doing. He's like, that's why I do it. I don't do it for accolades. I don't do it to be made much of. I do it because I want to see people meet Jesus. I want to see people meet Jesus. Now, if you know Robert's story, when he showed up here the first Sunday, him and Anita uh, showed up here, uh, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, something like that. And Robert uh, stood in the corner with his arms crossed, and his brow furrowed, and he had some unsavory words written across his forehead. And I said to myself, I'm going to make it my mission to get this guy to enjoy being a part of West Village. And I went over to him, and I just started connecting with him. A few weeks later, he, believe it or not, he actually signed up to help out in the hospitality team. And he was a greeter, and he was like shaking people's hands, and he was, he's been one of the biggest supporters of the work that Jesus is doing here. Uh, and then when that, the vacancy to serve in the setup leadership role came, he's like, I, I got to get in on this. And um, I mean, there were many times where I would come up to him after a Sunday and go, Robert, guess what happened? Guess what happened? Somebody met Jesus this morning, or, or God did something great in someone's life, and he would, every time, tears in his eyes, that's why I do it. That's why I do it. That's why I do it. So, Robert, I just want to honor the work that the Spirit of God has done, is doing, and will do through you, and just say thank you, thank you, thank you. So, church family, can we thank Robert, please? Give me a hug. Yep. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Okay. 
He did not like one second of that, I promise you. <laughs> okay, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Picking up in verse 9, uh, we have been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and, and this morning, we are coming to a text that this is probably like my most... It's like my favorite text that, I mean, it's hard to pick one verse over another verse, one story over another story, but I just love this particular story that we're going to encounter this morning. And if you're new to West Village, if you've been just coming for a little while, checking us out, trying to figure out what we're all about, you have come on a great morning because the text we're going to dive into this morning, really, if I could just take West Village and put it in a bottle, this story would be the reflection of our church. This story that we're going to talk about this morning really paints a great picture for what it means to be a part of the West Village family. Because what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see that Jesus loves sinners. He absolutely loves them. He will go to great lengths to pursue them and call them and save them and redeem them and use them. And it's a beautiful reality that we come to when we come to this text, because what we see ultimately in this text is that Jesus is a missionary, that his heart is missional, that he came from heaven to earth. Just like we send missionaries overseas to do cross-cultural ministry, Jesus came from the culture of heaven down to the culture of earth. He left all the comforts of being worshipped by angels to come down here to roll up his sleeves, to get his hands dirty, to identify with sinners, to hang out with sinners, to love sinners, not to trivialize their sin, not to, not to diminish the brokenness, but rather to identify with them, to call them, to show them that he loves them, to rescue and redeem them so that they could, just as he was missional, just as he is a great missionary, also be missionaries. And it is this reality that drives everything we do here at West Village. We are driven not by a denomination. We are driven not by a particular ministry philosophy. We are not driven by our Soma family. The Soma family is not what determines the way we structure our church. It is the gospel. It is the reality that very near and dear to the heart of God. In fact, I would argue, and I think this text will show us this morning, that very central to the heart of God is that he loves and delights to pursue people who are far from him. That he loves sinners. That he loves the broken. That he loves the downtrodden. That he loves those who think in their minds that they are the furthest from him. Those are the ones that Jesus pursues the most. And so that's what we're all about here at West Village. We're all about Jesus. We're all about his gospel. And we're all about sending out missionaries. We do not think that missionaries are merely people who go overseas to foreign lands and foreign countries to do uh, gospel work, although that is indeed a, a component of what it means to be a missionary. But we believe that the Spirit of God actually calls the church to be missionaries wherever God has placed them. Uh, one of the ways that we talk about the church is that it is a missional organization, that the reason West Village exists is merely to, to train up missionaries and send them out to the city. Uh, the city that you live in, the city of Victoria, is one of the least church cities in North America. We've been talking about this for eight years. We're going to continue to talk about it. Because the, on the average Sunday, there's roughly three and a half percent of our people that would identify with a church gathering. Many of those churches don't even teach and preach the Bible, which means roughly seven or seven and a half people out of 10 do not know about Jesus. They do not know about God's love for them. And the reason that God saves people and rescues people and redeems people and rescues sinners and saves sinners is so that they can go out and be on mission to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is why you've been saved. And so if you're here from another church, you're, 
you know, here because, uh, you know, you're just church shopping, you're new to the city, or, you know, you're just checking us out. We're excited you're here, but I need you to know something. Here's our goal. We see you come in and we, we, we think fresh meat. That's what we think. Fresh meat. This is great. We can train you to be missionaries to the city of Victoria. Uh, there's one author, Jonathan Dodson, who's out of uh, uh, Austin, Texas, and he talks about the life of a Christian coming in. He talks about these three conversions that happen over the, the timeline of the life of a Christian. Uh, the first conversion is to Jesus. Jesus calls. We receive his call to follow him. We become Christians. The second conversion is a conversion to the church. When you make a decision to follow Jesus, then you become a part of his church. Oftentimes, those two conversions go hand in hand. Not all the time, but often that is the case. But he talks about this third conversion, this third conversion that needs to happen to the Christian. And he says it's the conversion to the mission of Jesus. First conversion to Jesus, to following Jesus. Second conversion to Jesus' church. And then the third conversion is to the mission of Jesus. And many of us need a third conversion. Many of us need a conversion that says, God did not save us so that we could come here, so that we could sing songs, so that we could come to church, so that we could hear sermons, so that we could do churchy things, and then one day he's going to suck us up into heaven to be with him. No, but he saved us so that others might come to know who he is. That whatever God has done to you, he also then wants to do through you. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 9. So Matthew chapter 9, picking up in verse 9, Here's how Matthew starts this story. As Jesus went from there. Okay, let's hit pause for just one quick second. Let me just set up the context for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, you know, for the last few weeks. We went through the Sermon on the Mount for the better part of half of a year. So Matthew chapter 4, chapter 5, uh, no, sorry, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, Matthew had, or Jesus rather, had been preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He'd been up on the top of a mountain preaching to a group of people who were wanting to follow him, and he was laying out for them what it looks like to be the people of God. What is the constitution of the kingdom? What are the, the precepts of the kingdom? What are the ways in which God desires his people to live? What does it look like when Jesus Christ is seated on the throne? And then there's this shift that occurs in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, where it says that Jesus came down off of the mountain. So he comes down off of the mountain, and then in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, where we've been working through over the last number of weeks, what we see is that Jesus comes off the mountain, he enters into the lives of people, and instead of just teaching and preaching about the kingdom, he actually starts to live out the kingdom. So we start seeing Jesus do all kinds of stuff, right? We saw a few weeks ago where he, where he, he actually came to a town and there were, there were demon-possessed uh, men and he healed them. We saw him calm storms. We see him heal uh, people who have physical ailments. And all of this is Matthew trying to show us what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks into a people, a person, or a place. And what I love about what we see here in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, and really throughout the entire gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus comes down off of the mountain. As we've already said, Jesus is a missionary. Jesus enters into the brokenness. Jesus doesn't stay up on the mountain and just spit out religious platitudes. But rather, he enters in. He comes down. He identifies with people. And I would argue that this is one of the things, maybe the thing, that separates Christianity, the kingdom of God, the gospel, following Jesus from every other worldview and every other religion. See, there's a great picture that we see here because every other religion, every other worldview has some form of what we would say is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would do to yourselves. Try really hard to be a nice person functionally. In other words, get to the top of the mountain. 
Jesus is at the top of the mountain. He's waiting for you. If you climb hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you do enough nice good things, you can get yourself to the top of the mountain. You can do it. The onus is on you. Be a good person. What we see in Christianity is the complete opposite. And we see this time and time and time and time and time again throughout the entire story of God, but specifically the apex, the zenith of this reality in the story of God is in the life and ministry of Jesus, where he actually enters in and he identifies with those who are far from God. He identifies with the broken. And so that's where we are this morning. Jesus comes down off the mountain and he goes, uh, he went from there, uh, as Jesus went from there, and then he says this, Matthew writes this, he saw a man named Matthew. Now, here's what's happening. Matthew is actually writing a story for us about his own conversion. And what's interesting here is that Matthew doesn't sugarcoat anything. What we're going to see in just a second is that Matthew was not a great guy. And what I love about this story is, is Matthew doesn't try and sell himself. Matthew doesn't try and make himself look good. Matthew's just really raw and honest. In fact, when Matthew tells his story, and this is just a little tip for those of us who are ever have, whoever have an opportunity to share our story with someone who doesn't know Jesus, Matthew doesn't make himself the hero of the story. In fact, Matthew doesn't spare any of the gory, gross details. He, he goes into great depths to make people aware of how broken he really was. Why? So that Jesus could be made much of. See, what Matthew wants is he wants Jesus to be the hero. And just a side note, for those of you who are here, maybe new to following Jesus, new to Christianity, you're just checking this out, you got invited by a friend, dragged here, whatever the case is, and you're like, I'm not sure I can actually trust the Bible. I'm not sure I can actually trust uh, what this guy is talking about. Just ask yourself this question. Here's an interesting question to ask. If you were going to write your own conversion story that was going to be uh, cemented in human history for the next squillion years, because the Bible's not going anywhere, wouldn't you leave out maybe some of the unsavory parts? Wouldn't you kind of rewrite history? I mean, I know I do this all the time, right? When I tell my own story, you know, I tend to take off maybe some of the more ugly parts. I share some of the brokenness, but not all of the brokenness. And Matthew's just putting it all on the table. That's the beautiful reality of the Bible. The Bible's honest. The Bible's not full of really great religious people. The Bible's full of really broken people. And Jesus is really the only great person in the Bible. And so Matthew's telling his own conversion story. Here's where it gets raw and real. Here's what he says. So as Jesus went from here to there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. So Matthew tells us what he did for a living. He was a tax collector. How many of us like tax collectors, right? Income tax season, those of you who owe, super awesome, isn't it? No? Nobody? Not one hand went up. Okay, there you go. With every eye bowed and every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Nobody likes tax collectors. It's annoying to give your money to somebody. It's frustrating. You work hard for your money, right? You don't want to give it up. You don't want to, it's like, no, I don't want to do that. Well, people didn't like tax collectors way more than we don't like tax collectors. The way tax collection worked in this context in first century Rome was this. The Roman Empire had rule and reign over the Jewish people. They'd, they'd kind of come in. They were tyrannical and they had authority over them and they basically parsed up the region into different areas. And then those areas would go up for bid. And a person, a tax collector, could actually bid on a particular area. And he would place a bid, and then Rome would give him the rights to collect taxes in that area. And so Matthew had placed a bid. He'd earned the right to collect taxes in this particular area, but 
So, so when he would collect taxes, here's what would happen. He would have to collect enough taxes, first to pay back the money that he owed Rome for the bid, second to actually pay the tax that Rome was requiring him to tax people of, and then third, he needed to make a living. So the tax was much greater than the actual legislated tax that the government had put out. He was essentially extorting people. He was ripping people off. He was a thief. But it gets even worse than this because Matthew was Jewish. So here is a guy who's working for the government, who's enslaving his own people, and he's ripping them off to get them rich. In other words, he's just propagating this machine that is oppressing people. So Matthew is not well-liked, needless to say. If you don't like tax collectors, anybody reading this in a first-century Jewish context who Matthew was actually writing to would have read the name Matthew tax collector, and they would have said some really bad, you know, Jewish words right after, like, about how they feel about him. They didn't like him. But even more than that, so he's a very unsavory character, right? He's not a good dude. But even more than that, it wasn't just about his moral character. It wasn't just about his his social standing within society. He was also deemed religiously un clean for a whole bunch of reasons. One, because he worked with Gentiles. Two, because he ripped people off. Three, because uh, he, he associated with the kinds of people that were looked at as unworthy of the grace of God. And check this out. Matthew then was deemed guilty by association. So, so here's the point I'm trying to get at. As bad as you think this is, it's way worse. He wasn't just not liked, he was hated. They loathed him. I can't overstate this enough. And then look at what happens next. So Jesus sees Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth, and look at what he says to him. Follow me, he told him. Follow me, Jesus says to Matthew, the tax collector. Now, whenever Matthew uses this phrase, follow me, he's not talking about going for a walk to talk about your feelings. Right? He's not, he's not talking like, let's go hike Theodos and grab a latte after. Whenever Matthew uses the, the, the phrase or the, the word, follow me, the words follow me, he's talking about discipleship. He's talking about an intimate relationship whereby Jesus, the rabbi, would train him up to do what he is doing. So Jesus was thought of as a rabbi in the first century. That's how they viewed him, was a religious teacher, a religious leader. They didn't really have a category for how that worked out, but that's how they viewed him. And, and here we have a religious leader. We have Jesus calling Matthew to follow him. Now, now remember who Matthew is, right? Not a savory character. Not the guy that if you're the rabbi, if you're the religious leader, if you're starting your own church or planting your own church and you're looking for a core group, This isn't the guy you're going like, I think he would be a good guy to have on my team. No, because if you invite him to follow you, if you invite him to be a part of your church, part of your community group, uh, part of your your church plant launch, here's what's going to happen. No one else is going to come. And so there's this, it's beautiful. It's, it's, I don't even have words to put to it. This is a scandal. This is a scandal, meaning like, this is shocking. 
Like, like we can't even, we, we've heard this, and you know, that, that's probably the, the biggest deficit we have coming into this text, is you've heard this text probably a billion times if you're you know, not new to church. But this is so unlikely. I was trying to think of an example that wouldn't get me fired or offend you to the degree that you don't ever want to come back, but I'm just going to go for it here, okay? This would be, well, here, just check this out for a second. What was Matthew doing when Jesus called him? Right, put, your, put your eyes on the screen or the verses here. Verse 9. He was sitting at the tax collector's booth. So, he's actually ripping people off as Jesus walks up to him. In fact, there's a good chance that he tried to rip Jesus off as Jesus was walking by. So, so what, what can we, like, this would be as if Jesus walked into, and again, I don't want to get fired, and I don't want to needlessly offend you, but I, I want you to feel this. You need to feel this, otherwise nothing else makes sense. This would be like Jesus walking into a strip club, looking at a girl hanging from a pole, and saying, I want you to be my disciple. This would be like Jesus walking in on you at your worst moment. And I don't know what your worst moment is, but I can only imagine there's a lot of people in the room. That means there's a lot of sinners in the room. That means there's a lot of sin in the room. Looking at you at your worst moment. The porn is on the screen. And he taps you on the shoulder. And you're quickly trying to hit the eject button. He says, just stop for a second. I want you to come and follow me. What? This is insane. What are you talking about, Jesus? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know what I've done? Do you not know what I'm doing right now? And you want me? Yes. scandal. It's unbelievable. The grace of God, it's so unbelievable. Some of you think you can out-sin the grace of God. Some of you are here this morning, you're like, I'm not worthy of God's grace. I'm here, but I don't want to be here. I'm here, and I'm uncomfortable. All the things you just talked about, the stripper on the pole, the porn, that's junior varsity compared to my life. Right? Those guys are JV when it comes to sinning. I'm way better at sinning than those people, so I must not be included in this. And Jesus is going, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't outsin my grace. You can't outsin how far I've come. I didn't come from overseas. I came from heaven to earth. I didn't just give some of myself. I laid down all of myself. I gave my life to cover your brokenness. My blood was shed. My body was broken. There is nothing, not one thing that you can do that falls outside of my grace. And some of you just need to receive that this morning. Some of you are trying so hard to pretend. You're trying so hard to earn the grace of God. You're trying so hard to get up to the top of the mountain. 
And Jesus is saying, like, it's not that I don't want you to try to pursue obedience. It's not that I don't want you to try to pursue holiness. But some of you just need to know God loves you this morning. Amen? You just need to receive it. You need to stop staring at your own brokenness and think that somehow that disqualifies you. And you need to stare at the scandalous grace, the radical grace, the fierce love of Jesus and see how much greater it is than your brokenness. And walk away and run towards his love and his mercy because look at what Matthew does. It's amazing. Follow me, he told him. What does Matthew do? He gets up and he follows him. He's like, this is a good deal. I'm taking this. I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk away and I'm going to follow Jesus. Uh, Don't miss what he's walked away from, right? He's walked away from his livelihood. He's walking away from his relationships. He's walking away from all the money that is afforded to him by being a tax collector. Why? Because the scandalous grace and love and mercy of Jesus, Jesus' love for sinners is so compelling that Matthew had no other choice. And for some of you, here's what you need to hear this morning. Some of you need to respond to the grace of God. You've sat here for weeks. You've listened to sermons. You've been in community group and people have been sharing the gospel with you and you're thinking and you're pondering and you're weighing the options as if there's more than one. And listen, I don't want to make this text say something that the text doesn't say or make it say more than it's intended to say, but I want you to see something here. Jesus called Matthew, and Matthew got up and followed him. To be sure, there are many times where Jesus says, you know, count the cost before you follow me. Okay, that's, that's there. That's a part of this deal as well. But for some of you, it's time. Some of you just need to stand up, like metaphorically, just to be clear, okay? I don't want to create an awkward moment here. You need to stand up and you need to come and follow Jesus. Some of you need to put your hand up and go, I need to get baptized. That's probably your next step. I need to make a public declaration of my intent to follow Jesus. I mean, Matthew is making a public intent, not of baptism here. He didn't even know what baptism was at this point, but it was a public declaration of his intent to follow Jesus. Everyone's there, right? The Roman government employees are there. Jesus is there. The disciples are there. There's other religious leaders, as we're going to see in just a second, that were there. And Matthew stood up and he walked away from his brokenness and he walked towards Jesus. He literally followed Jesus. For some of you, you need to literally make a decision to follow Jesus. But do not miss this, that Jesus right now is putting his offer on the table. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you haven't done. It doesn't matter what you think you should have done that you didn't do. It doesn't matter how unworthy you feel. It doesn't matter how far away from the grace of God you think you are. Jesus is coming to you and his invitation is clear. Follow me. Follow me. I want you to be my disciple. What a scandal. And my encouragement to us is that we would run after Jesus, that you would run after Jesus. And so Matthew gets up, he follows. Look at verse 10. Here's what Matthew records. When Jesus, so after this happens, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many 
tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So what's going on here? Okay, there's a bit of a shift in the story. Jesus sees Matthew. He's doing his thing. Jesus says, come follow me. Matthew gets up, starts following him. And then sometime after, it seems like it's almost immediate, although we're not 100% sure, but it is definitely written in the original language as though this were something that occurred very close to the incident of Jesus calling Matthew to follow him. What does Matthew do? He throws a party. Okay, he throws a party. Now, now notice something here. Who does he invite to the party? Tax collectors and sinners. Who are tax collectors and sinners? They're people just like Matthew. Right? These are people that, like, whenever the Bible says tax collectors and sinners, it's kind of a junk drawer term to, to describe people who are of ill repute. Right? These are not the people that get up on Sunday morning and come to a church gathering. These are people who are just as broken as Matthew. These are people who, you know, smoke the hippie lettuce, but it's not for medicinal purposes, right? They got track marks on their arms. They got tattoos on their necks. They got skirts that are too short and tops that are too low. And they might not even be gals. It could be gals dressed like guys and guys dressed like gals. Like it's, it's a mixed bag. Like think about who you think is the furthest away from coming here on a Sunday morning. These are the kind of people that are at this party. Now, now I want to just pause here and ask a couple of questions because this seems curious to me. I mean, if you're, if you're reading, like one of the things I do when I sit down to prepare a sermon is I read the text and then I go, like, what questions do I have about this? And the first question that I had when I came to verse 10 is, why would Matthew throw a party? What is it about what's occurred with Jesus in verse 9 that caused him to want to throw a party in verse 10? Well, the answer is the gospel. It's the gospel that caused Matthew to want to throw a party. The gospel translated could also be good news. So something about what happened with, with Jesus and Matthew translated to good news in the life of Matthew. Amazing news, really. And, and what's interesting, you go back to verse 9 for a second, put your nose in verse 9. It says this in kind of the second half, the last few words there. It says that Matthew got up and followed him. Notice that phrase, got up. If you go back to the text that Andrew preached last week, just a few verses back in verse 7, there's this incident where Jesus heals the paralytic. And when Jesus heals the paralytic, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. It says that the paralytic, what? Got up. Same Greek word. So there's something interesting happening here. In the story previous to the one we're looking at, we have this incident where Jesus physically heals a man. And what we have here in verse 9 is not necessarily Jesus physically healing a man, but spiritually healing a man. So, so imagine this with me for a second. Imagine you were physically lame, like something happened to you physically that forced you to, uh, to, to live your life in a wheelchair. And you had an encounter with Jesus. Forget about Jesus for a second. Let's say you had an encounter with a physician, a doctor, a medical doctor, and he had some technology to heal you of whatever it was that was ailing you to the degree that you could now get up and walk. So you lived your entire life. In my case, that would be 40, almost 40 years next week. Woohoo! 40 years in a wheelchair. And on my 40th birthday, I had an encounter with a doctor, with some medicine that allowed me to get up and walk. What would I do? What would be my response? I mean, that would be good news, right? Yeah, good news. 
Yeah, somebody. Yeah, it's good news. I'm throwing a party. I'm probably dancing as white guy as I am. I'm going to I'm going to dance. I'm going to tell some people. I'm going to update my Facebook status. I'm going to take some obnoxious pictures of me walking and I'm going to do all these humble brags on social media about how great and amazing it is that I can now walk because it's a big deal. It's good news. It's amazing news. What Matthew's trying to show us here is that what's happened in his life is the equivalent, that he didn't have a physical ailment, but he had a spiritual ailment, that it wasn't his legs that didn't work, but it was his heart that didn't work, that there was something broken in him that caused him to live the life that he was living, and that this love that Jesus had for him, this this pursuit Jesus had in coming to Matthew and inviting him to follow him, it was so scandalous that it changed and transformed Matthew to the degree that he was healed. He was spiritually healed. Theologically, this is what we call the doctrine of regeneration. We actually just sang about it. It's this idea that God gives us a new heart. That all of a sudden, Matthew had new desires. His desires weren't to rip people off. It wasn't to extort people. It wasn't to lie to people. It was to follow Jesus. And, and God had actually taken his broken heart and replaced it with a new heart. And Matthew had been healed. And this was such good news to him. Because he never experienced love like this. And he was healed to the degree that he had to throw a party. I got to tell somebody. Can I just, just for a second here, submit something to us for your consideration? This is in no way intended to be a word of condemnation. And you know you're about to hear something significant when it's prefaced with that, right? It's called buttering you up. If you're not excited about telling people about Jesus, like if it doesn't stir your affections to the point that somebody else just needs to know what I know because this has been so life-altering, life-transforming, like it's a big deal. I'm just, again, you and the Holy Spirit. It's possible you haven't been changed by him. See, because in a second, we're going to be introduced to the religious leaders here, and, and they're beefing about this whole scene. They're beefing about this idea that Jesus would eat with these people, hang out with these people. Why? Because they don't know that they're broken. And it's conceivable to come here, listen to sermons, do your thing, do the churchy thing, and not know Jesus. And here, here's just another possibility. You once had a Matthew experience with the gospel, maybe many of them, but you've been here for so long, you've been doing this for so long that you somehow have deceived yourself into thinking that you no longer need Jesus. You needed Jesus to get into this whole game, but now you just are doing your thing. And you actually don't need him anymore. If that's the case, then there's a good chance that the gospel is actually not going to be good news because Jesus didn't have to come to great lengths to save you because you've done a great work in saving yourself. And so the hero of the story isn't Jesus, it's you. When you throw a party, it isn't about Jesus, it's about you. When you celebrate your life, it isn't about Jesus, it's about you. 
Friends, we, we have to be in this place where we recognize the scandal of the grace of God that we were Matthew and he called us to follow him. And so Matthew throws a party because he's so keenly aware of his own brokenness and so keenly aware of the scandal of the cross that he has no other option but to celebrate what God has done in his life and healing his broken heart. The second question, that's the first question, why throw a party? The second question is, why does he invite sinners and tax collectors? Why does he invite this group of people? I mean, I think the answer is obvious, right? Because he looks at his friends and he recognizes they have great need. He looks at them and he's like, they need to know what I know because I've been changed and transformed. I've already said this once, but I'll say it again. We live in one of the least church cities. You live, work, hang out with people that do not know Jesus and desperately need to know Jesus. They might not look like the people in this story look. They might not, on the outside at least, appear to be as broken as these people appear to be broken. We do a great job in Victoria. We do a great job in the West Shore. We do a great job in the church of hiding the degree to which we are broken, but make no mistake about it. People's hearts need to be changed and transformed by the gospel. People's hearts are indeed broken. They are spiritually sick, and they need to have encounters with Jesus. And so we look at Matthew, and he, look at what he does. Like, this is crazy. He becomes a follower of Jesus, and what's the next thing he does? He becomes a missionary. Like, this is the Christian life. Get up, walk away from your brokenness, follow Jesus, and start inviting others to follow him along with you. The Christian life is this. It is being a missionary. And so all of our life now is one of mission and ministry. That the reason that you have been saved is to follow Jesus and to invite others to do it. The reason you have a house is to invite others into your home to experience the gospel. The reason you have a kitchen table is so that others can sit around it with you, share their stories, be prayed for, and and experience what Matthew experienced. The reason you have a couch is so that others can sit on it and have ministry done. To shame it would be for us to get to the end of our lives and have a house that wasn't used for the glory of God. To have a table that nobody heard the gospel over and nobody received prayer while sitting at. To have a couch that all we used it for was to watch Netflix, make out with our spouse, and take naps on Sunday afternoon. See, the call of Jesus is to get up walk away from our brokenness, to follow him, and then to, because we've been so radically changed and transformed, tell others about the radical grace of Jesus. Verse 11, this is where things change. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, the Pharisees, those are the Bible guys, they're the leaders of the church, they're the guys that memorize verses, right, preach the sermons. These are the guys who had control over the religious establishment, When they saw what was going on, they saw Jesus and Matthew at this party with all these sinners and tax collectors. They asked his disciples, and just notice this, okay, really quickly. They didn't ask Jesus, they asked the disciples, okay? They didn't go right to the source. They went around the source because that's what people do when they don't have pure motives. They asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, So the religious leaders are not in the party. They're on the outside looking in. Most likely this party was taking place on an outdoor patio 
It was probably sunken in just below ground level. The religious leaders were probably just on the outside looking in, and here's what they were seeing. They were seeing this party, right? You got the guy with the lampshade on his head, the gal that's wearing the, you know, the short skirt and the clear heels. It's messy, and there's all kinds of like unsavory, uh, not Jesus-y type things happening. And what's at the center of the party? Jesus. And the religious leaders look at this, and what are they asking? They're asking two questions. One, why isn't Jesus eating with us? And two, why weren't we invited to the party? Well, because religious people are a little bit stuffy, not fun to have around, so they don't get invited to a lot of parties. You don't get invited to a lot of parties. But notice what they're really upset about. Why are you eating with them? Why are you eating with them? Why are you in their house? Why are you at this party? Why are you associating with them? You see, in the first century, eating was a sign of identification. If I came into your home and I ate with you, it wasn't just a meal. It didn't just serve the purpose of filling the stomach or nourishing the body. It was actually a social uh, reality that was taking place whereby I was saying, I identify with you. And so their issue was that Jesus wasn't identifying with them, but rather identifying with these sinners and identifying with these tax collectors, identifying with these people who, who seemed like, looked like, appeared like, were outside of the grace of God. Why are they doing this? Now, now there's this reality that we have to understand about the religious leaders. Right? These are the Bible guys. These are the rules guys. And so what, what the religious leaders would do, and they had this weird view of what holiness meant, what it meant to be pious, what it meant to serve God, where their, their whole framework, their whole paradigm was that you would obey the rules. If you obeyed the rules, if you could externally obey the rules, then you were holy. So they would not just obey the rules, but they, they would actually make up rules to protect people from disobeying the rules. And they wouldn't just make up rules to you know, prevent people from disobeying the rules. They would actually, no joke, I'm not just making this up, they would make up rules to prevent you from make, uh, breaking the rules that would prevent you from breaking the rules. Just go read some of the Jewish writings around the Sabbath. It's not just about not working. It's about protecting yourself from doing anything that might be perceived as working. And so, so here's the problem is they had this view of holiness that you had to earn it. You had to work hard. You had to try hard to be holy. And if you did the wrong thing, if you said the wrong thing, if you went to the wrong place, if you wore the wrong clothes, if you didn't look the way that somebody else wanted you to look, you were unholy. And so they look at Jesus, and they look at who he's associating himself with, and they're like, that's not good. And they condemn the people that Jesus is spending his time with. And not only that, they're ultimately condemning Jesus. Let me just say to you, be mindful of people who want you to be more holy than Jesus was. Because that's what religious people are going to ask you to do. They're going to ask you to be more holy than Jesus was actually being himself. And that's a problem. And Jesus looks at these guys, and look at what he says. Look at this next part of the verse here. Look at verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. So the religious leaders want to condemn. They want to throw stones. They literally want to write all these people off. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, I think we need to redeem them. I think we actually need to heal them. Like, if I was a doctor, wouldn't it be weird if I only ever hung out with people who were not sick? Like, if you saw a doctor and he was 
surround, like, you know, you got sick people coming to his office all day long. You're not like, oh, man, that doctor, he's bad news. You're like, no, that's actually a really good doctor. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm, I'm the doctor. See, see they're sick. We, you're right. You're, you're right, religious leaders. There's something wrong with them. And the answer isn't to just cast them aside. The answer isn't to, you know, I mean, I'm all for praying, okay? Let's just be clear, but just to like pray for them. That's not merely all Jesus is wanting us to do. Enter in. You might get a little messy. You might get some sin on you. You might get a little, you might catch a cold, to go back to the doctor analogy. But you gotta, you gotta stoop down and enter in. That's the only way these guys are going to get well, is if we actually enter in. The only way that they're gonna, the only way that they're gonna come around, the only way they're gonna be healed is if I come to this party and meet with them, because they're not coming here. They're not coming to our temples. They're not coming to our church gatherings. So we have to go to them. And you see, I think some of us were so afraid. We're so afraid that we might get a, you know, might, might be declared unholy. If we go to the wrong place or do the wrong thing or see the wrong, and, I, and I'm not, like, listen, I'm not trying to lower the bar of expectation for following Jesus, but, but I think this text is going to make a pretty strong claim here that central to the heart of God is the pursuit of lost people. I mean, think about the cross for just a second. Jesus goes to the cross, and what does the Apostle Paul say about Jesus on the cross? That he became our sin. Is Jesus getting a little messy at the party? Is he going to smell like sin? Is he going to, you know, is he going to have sin splashed on him? Is he going to encounter sin? He is. The same thing happened when he went to the cross. All of your sin, all of my sin was splashed all over him. But that was the means by which he saved us. And Jesus here isn't saying, church, lower, you know, lower your standards so that people can come to know me. But he is saying, take a risk for the kingdom of God. Be wise. Pray to the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit. But if you don't enter in, if you don't enter in, how are they going to know? And then look at what he says next. I'll land the plane here, invite the band to come up. Verse 13, here's what he says to them. But go and learn. Just side note, these are the Bible guys, right? They memorized the whole Old Testament, many of them. He's like, you don't know enough. You need to go back to school. Matthew gets it, you don't get it. But he hasn't memorized any, he gets it. Go and learn. Go and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And Hosea, God brings through the prophet Hosea a word of condemnation against the people of God where they were very pious outwardly. They kept all the religious uh, systems and they kept all the, 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 the religious uh, facade up, but they neglected the poor, the orphan, and the widow. <laughs> you know why? I desire mercy not sacrifice. This is going to be extremely controversial. Some of you are going to disagree with me. Let's talk. I think what we see here is a case that there are certain aspects of God where he elevates 
different commands over other ones. Like what he's saying here, in the context of this story, is I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire that you would leave the 99 to pursue the one, not stay with the 99 and remain holy. In other words, like, and again, I don't want to take this where I don't think it's going, but, I, but I, this is how I read it. This is how I understand it. We can talk. And I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Let me just be really clear here, okay? It is worth risking your personal holiness to pursue lost people. Now, do not take that as an excuse to ditch morality, to ditch things that we know that God wants us to do. But we cannot look at the heart of God and see other than him entering into brokenness. As I've already said, becoming sin, associating with those who are unclean. Not trivializing, not minimizing, not excusing sin, but doing it in such a way and for the sole purpose that they would be redeemed. And before you write the email, send the text, or just leave, might I remind you that had God not done that, you would not be here. I would not be here. But because God enters into the brokenness, we have been saved. And then he says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. In other words, if you don't know you're broken, if you're sitting here and you have no desire to see people who are far from God come to know Him. You're sitting here and, and, and you have not just no desire, but you actually have condemnation in your heart towards those who do not look like you, live like you, follow Jesus like you, uh, order their lives like you. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you look at yourself and you're like, I'm righteous. I'm good. I, he's saying, I didn't come for you. I've only come for those who are broken, lost, and know that they need me. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. What does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Are there, is there hope for sinners? Yes. There is much hope for those of us who recognize that we are sinners. We see Jesus call Matthew. We see Matthew get sent out into ministry and on mission. Are there hope for those of us? Is there hope for those of us who are righteous? Yes. Yes. By God's grace, yes. But it requires a humbling of self and a recognition that you too are broken and in need of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and mercy. 
We thank you that you save us, that you love sinners, that you pursue us, that you come after us. And so, Lord, we in this moment, if we're if for us this is a first-time thing, like we have never actually, like Matthew got up and followed you, I pray right now, Spirit of God, that you would put it in our hearts, the call that you gave to follow, and we would respond. And if, if we're here this morning, and we, and this is my category, we're the religious leaders. Spirit, would you remind us that we once were sitting behind our tax collector's booth, that we were once broken, that we were once lost. Actually, even our forgetfulness of that moment is evidence of the fact that we are prideful. So in this moment right now, would you speak, follow you? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to respond and we're going to respond in a few ways. We're going to respond by singing. The band's going to lead us in singing. We're going to respond in giving, as Dave already said, all the ways that we can give. And we're going to respond in the way that we respond every week. And this is the high point of our Sunday morning time together where we take communion. So there's going to be two stations, one at the front of each of the aisles. Uh, you'll come forward and you'll receive a cracker and you can dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever you would prefer. And this is a picture of a God who enters in. This is a picture of a God who gets down off us. This is a picture of a God who actually became our sin that we might be rescued and redeemed. And so uh, as we respond to the goodness and grace of God, as you come forward to take communion, be reminded, be reminded that this is your come and follow me moment. That you coming forward, you're going to get up out of the tax collector's booth, the theater seat, and come forward and receive the mercies of God that are new every day. Let's respond, church.